Laudator Jesus Christus. Praise be Jesus Christ. This is Matt Gaspers, Managing Editor of Catholic Family News, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Dr. Brian McCall, who is the Editor-in-Chief of CFN. Hello, Brian. Uh, hard to believe we're already halfway through the month of August, isn't it? It is. It is. It's good to see you again, and welcome to everyone. And actually, I want to give a very special welcome to one of our Youngest viewers, actually, as uh, my godson, Marcel Godier, uh, who I think he just made his first communion recently, and I found out he was watching our show. So, oh, uh, wonderful. Hello, Marcel, <laughs> and uh, hope you're watching again. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, we've got uh, lots of interesting content to cover with you this week, and it's hard to believe that uh, summer vacation is already winding up and the new school year is upon us. Um, our stories this week include, uh, first off, Pope Francis's teaching on the relationship between faith in Christ and keeping the commandments. He had some interesting things to say during his Wednesday audience this week, some of which were legitimate, but others uh, were a little more murky, I guess you could say, questionable, and certainly picked up by his liberal progressive friends as being supportive of their position. Mm -hmm. uh, second of all, we're going to discuss the conviction and the, the penalization of a notable Polish priest for, quote, incitement to hatred of homosexuals. Uh, this priest is very well known for opposing what he calls the homo heresy in the church. He wrote an article to that effect back in 2012. And Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, uh, the German cardinal, has, has commented on this uh, recent conviction and punishment of the priest. So we'll get into that. Also, a very interesting online panel discussion on Traditionis Custodes happened on Monday of this week, featuring several familiar figures. Um, so we'll get into their discussion and a little bit of a disagreement between some of the panelists. That's very interesting. Hmm. Also, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett's decision to deny a request for injunctive relief, uh, which was on to challenge the university's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Uh, and then finally, a spiritual call to arms from uh, our good shepherd, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. So lots, uh, lots to discuss today. Yes. Before we get into all of that, we will uh, take a few moments, as we always do, to ponder the things that are above, as St. Paul says, look at, take a look at the liturgical calendar and spend some time reflecting on the, the spiritual riches of our faith. So today is Friday, August 13th, 2021, and on the traditional Roman calendar, it is the Feast of Saints Hippolytus and Cassian, both of whom were martyrs, and this is not the Saint Hippolytus of Rome. He's probably the more well-known Hippolytus, uh -huh. uh, known for some of his writings, and I think for a brief period became an antipope. So this is a different Saint Hippolytus. Actually, the uh, speaking of the guardians or the jailers of tradition, as we as we call uh, Tradosius Traditionis Custodis, uh, this Saint Hippolytus was actually the um, guardian of Saint Lawrence, who we also celebrated this week and who was converted and baptized by the saint. And just reading from my hand missile, he was, the Saint Hippolytus was tied by the legs to wild horses. And that's how he was martyred around the year 260, 258, I also read somewhere. Uh, 
And then St. Cassian was a schoolmaster in Imola, and he was pierced to death by his pagan pupils armed with styluses. That's like a, a teacher's worst nightmare. <laughs> Your That's students right. coming after you. <laughs> uh, Brian, I'm sure Brian, as a as a professor, can relate to that. Maybe he's woken up in a cold sweat with that nightmare. <laughs> no, it's more other professors than students coming after you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he was martyred uh, around the year 320. So that would have been, I think, during the Diocletian. Well, no, I guess Constantine was already reigning at that point. So. Mm -hmm. Kind of some leftover pagans from the, the yes. pre-Constantinian yes. era. Uh, other saints commemorated since our last show include, as I mentioned, St. Lawrence, the, the famous deacon in the early church, who was martyred uh, around the same time as uh, St. Hippolytus, so around 258, I believe it was. We celebrate him on August 10th, and also St. Clare of Assisi, one of the most important medieval female saints in the church, a disciple of St. Francis of Assisi. She, like Francis, was very wealthy. But if I recall correctly, she heard St. Francis preach when she was about 18 years old and renounced all of her worldly possessions very soon after and became the, the foundress, basically, of the poor Clare's order, the, the female counterparts to the Franciscans. Mm. I don't know if Brian had anything he wanted to add to our liturgical reflection this week. Just because it'll link to our, our final story, tomorrow is the Vigil of the Assumption, and in the yes. traditional calendar where there were vigils for important feasts, it was tr vigils traditionally are a day of, of fast and uh, abstinence, a day of penance to sort of prepare yourself for the feast. Right. Uh, so they have that important association with, with fasting and sort of added prayer and, pr and preparation, proximate preparation for the feast, uh, which will be, be important as we see as Archbishop Vigano uh, gives a real call to uh, use tomorrow to pray and to uh, offer uh, ourselves for preservation of tradition. Yes, exactly. And before we move on to our first story, I also just wanted to mention today is also a significant day in regard to the history of Our Lady's apparitions at Fatima. Yes. I'm going to read from uh, our friends at the Fatima Center have an excellent resource on their website called the Circumstances and Dialogue of the 1917 Apparitions. They have an, uh, an analogous one for the apparitions of the Angel of Peace in 1916. So here's what it says under August 13th and 19th for 1917. Because as most viewers probably know, Our Lady appeared on the 13th of each month, beginning in May, May 13th, 1917. But August was the anomaly. The children were not able to be present in the COVID area because they were kidnapped by the local mayor, the, the Freemason, who was trying to bully them basically into number one, telling him the great secret, which they had received the previous month, but also to renounce the, the truth of the apparitions. So this, this uh, resource says, on August 13th, between 10 and 20,000 people gathered at the Cova, excuse me, the Cova de Iria to await the arrival of Our, late, Our Lady. The three little seers, however, were not present. The administrator of the district, Arthur de Oliveira Santos, a prominent Freemason who actually was baptized Catholic but tragically renounced the faith at around age 20, and embraced the demonic Freemasonic uh, worldview. So he had kidnapped and, and imprisoned the children. 
essentially he came to the to where they lived and pretended like he wanted to go to the Koba to witness the apparition and coaxed them into his coach, you know, into his carriage saying, oh, come on, I'll, I'll drive you there and it'll go faster. People won't bother you that way. But then he went in the opposite direction and actually took them to his own home and imprisoned them there. Mm. And for two days, the resource says he used many means, including the threat of boiling them in oil to pry from them either the secret itself or a confession that they were lying. Courageously, the children refused to betray their confidence and remain steadfast under every tactic used. Again, it's an incredible example for our time because here we have little children, um, yes. you know, young, young children. And, uh, you know, what he does is he takes them one at a time and he says, unless you tell me the secret, you're going to be boiled in water. And then Jacinta goes out and they hear her scream. And then right. Francisco goes out and Lucia hears him scream. And then he goes down to Lucia and says, okay, you're going to join them. So I can think about psychological torture oh, to these yeah. children, but they didn't flinch. Why? And again, this is, and all these people want to hand ring and situation ethics and, oh, maybe we should accept the vaccine. Maybe we should just go along, right? With all these kinds of things. Here are young children who promised our lady to keep this secret. And again, they didn't rationalize it. Oh, well, she, you know, she knew I was being threatened. It would be, you know, she'd be saying all that. They don't be prudent. No. They, they made a promise to Our Lady. They had a principle that they lived by and they were willing. Right. I mean, they really thought, Lucia says she thought she was going to be killed in boiling right. oil when she left that room. Uh, I think really the key inspired. is that their, I think the key is that their focus, as Lucia recounts in her memoirs, is that their focus was on heaven. Yes. They basically were telling each other, who cares if they kill us? We'll go straight to heaven. We'll go That'll straight be to heaven. Yes, exactly. So they had a supernatural outlook on life that so many of us today are lacking. Yes. So I think that's a good segue. Oh, so, well, just to finish the yes. story then. Um, so the children were not able to be present on August 13th. The mayor finally released them back to their, their parents on August 15th. And then this resource says, on the afternoon of August 19th, which was a Sunday, Lucia and Francisco, accompanied by Francisco's older brother, John, went to put their sheep to pasture. This is the account that Sister Lucia gave of what occurred. We don't have, we don't have time to go over all of it, but basically Our Lady appeared after uh, Jacinta arrived um, because she wasn't present and John, uh, Francisco's older brother, ran to get her. So this is what Our Lady said, I want you, to continue going to the Cova de Iria on the 13th, uh, that you continue praying the rosary every day. On the last month, I will perform a miracle so that all may believe. It, uh, if they had not taken you to the town, that's referring to the kidnapping, the miracle would have been greater. St. Joseph will come with the child Jesus to give peace to the world. Our Lord will come to bless the people. Our Lady of the Rosary and Our Lady of Sorrows will come also. That's referring to the apparitions in succession. While the, the miracle of the sun was going on, the children were seeing these apparitions take place. Yes. But the most significant thing Our Lady said on that date, August 19th, 1917, was, quote, pray, pray very much and make sacrifices for sinners for many souls go to hell because they have no one to make sacrifices and pray for them. So that should be something that we remember often. Yes. And, and pray and sacrifice accordingly. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get into our stories for today. The first of which uh, 
is centers or centers on Pope Francis's Wednesday audience. As viewers probably know, every Wednesday the Pope gives a public address. He's currently um, giving some catechetical instruction uh, on the on St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And it was the final sentence of the Pope's teaching this week that grabbed headlines. For example, America Magazine ran with it for uh, reasons that will become obvious. <laughs> so this is the last sentence of his instruction for this week. Quote, may the Lord help us to journey along uh, the path of the commandments, but looking toward the love of Christ with the encounter with Christ, knowing that, and then this is the phrase, the encounter with Jesus is more important than all of the commandments, end quote. So we can understand why outlets such as America Magazine, the Jesuit Magazine, would run with that as a headline, because to them, you know, keeping the commandments is obviously not that important. Father James Martin is constantly going around, essentially encouraging people to violate the sixth commandment. Yes. Um, so we're going to go through some key passages from his address and kind of unpack them for you and, and refer you back to some traditional teachings, some traditional catechesis on this issue, which is very important, really lies at the heart of the whole Protestant revolution, the relationship between faith and keeping the law and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. No, and there's some subtle, very clever uh, deviations from St. Thomas's teaching on the on the law that are they're embedded in here. So it's yes. it's very Jesuitical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the Pope begins by quoting Galatians 3:19. Why the law, which was St. Galatians deals very much with the relationship between um, faith and the Mosaic law because Judaizers had, as Pope Francis rightly says, had infiltrated the Galatian church, the Galatian community. And we're trying to get people to revert back to Judaism, basically, uh, when they had already embraced the Christian faith. So he says, this is the, what, you know, what, why the law? This is the question that we want to deepen today, continuing with St. Paul, to recognize the newness of Christian life enlivened by the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, the apostle writes, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's a quote from Galatians 5.18. Instead, says Pope Francis, Paul's detractors sustained that the Galatians had to follow the law to be saved. They were going backward. They were nostalgic for times gone by, of the times before Jesus Christ. When Paul, and the next quote, and this is where it starts to get significant. When Paul speaks about the law, he is normally referring to the Mosaic law, the law given by Moses, the Ten Commandments. Now, there's some equivocation going on there because yes, yes. the Mosaic Law does, is not um, is not exclusive to the Ten Commandments. It, it's all the other laws included. So maybe Brian can so, break that down for us. Yeah, there's there's two equivocations I think. So one first distinction we have to make is when we refer to the Torah, which you will, or to the Old Testament Law, the Law governing the Jews. There were, St. Thomas tells us there were three parts of that law, but he calls the judicial precepts, the ceremonial precepts, and the moral precepts. And the yes. Ten Commandments would fall in the moral precepts. And St. Thomas makes clear the moral precepts are binding forever. They're not unique right. to the, the covenant with the Jews. The ceremonial precepts were for a time because they looked forward to the coming of Christ. And this is one of the things St. Paul's talking about. Right. When, when, when the Christians wanted to preserve the Jewish ceremonial precepts, he's saying 
you've got this all wrong because those have they've they're finished they're superseded because right. they were looking toward Christ since we are after Christ we have new ceremonies so the first point the pope's playing on right is yes if you want to adhere and this is why saint thomas says it is a mortal sin against the first commandment to participate in a jewish ceremony a Passover meal, ceremonial Passover meal, or any of these things, a, re a religious circumcision, because you are you are essentially engaged in a ceremony that looks to the coming of the Messiah who has already come. So you are denying that Christ is the Messiah. And that's why right. he said it would be a sin against the first commandment. That's the ceremonial. The judicial precepts were more particular rules that to govern the Jewish community. So in a sense, what God said the Jewish people were evil, were wicked. Their hearts were not, you know, they, they were chosen, but they basically kept, you know, falling down on the job. Right? They kept worshiping pagan gods, even from the moment of the Ten Commandments. So God basically said, I have to govern for you. That's why when they wanted a king, he said, I am your king. I give you very detailed rules on how Israel should work. And they were the judicial precepts, very particular rules on how the community should operate. And those also only were meant up until the coming of the Messiah. Because then we get a new law, again, that Francis doesn't talk about, the law of liberty, which is what St. Thomas calls it, the law of grace or the law of liberty. And what right. that means is that God says, okay, now that you have grace, your rulers should be more competent in making those detailed judicial kind of human laws that implement the sort of very detailed rules, right? how you mm -hmm. elect things. And he said, so God steps back and grants more legal authority to the rulers of the church to make detailed rules. When are holy days of obligation? Things like that. This precepts right. of the church, whereas God made them himself before because there was no grace, because grace was not available, right. uh, sanctifying grace. Now that it is, then he steps back. So again, they wanted to cling to the old judicial precepts. St. Thomas makes clear, A, this does not apply to the moral precepts, the Ten Commandments, which were already binding before Mount Sinai in the natural law. Right. The second distinction that, that Pope again plays on here is this, where he says, you were under the law, we're no longer under the law, is this distinction of the way the law, the, the law plays out. It's not that we're no longer under the law, but we're under it as sons, not as criminals really is a way to them. He doesn't use those words. But right. the Jews basically said, basically in the Old Testament, people were so wicked that they needed to be under the law strictly by like criminals. Like you need to be kept in jail because you're, you're really, you know, you have no grace. And the right. law was, was restrictive in that sense. You obeyed it because you, you, we were under a punishment. We were under a, a sentence where once the coming of Christ, the law of liberty is we obey the law as sons, as right. because we love Christ, because we are one with Christ when we are in the, the state of grace, that our motivation for obeying the law is exactly what he tells us, right? What think about the, the, uh, um, act of contrition, right? I'm hardly sorry for having offended you. Most of all, because I have offended you, right, as a, as a child. And that's what the law of liberty means. We are obeying the law, not as those declared as a punishment on us, which the law was for the Jews. It was a punishment for sin. St. Right. Paul explains that the law now we're free and we still obey it because of the love of God as our father, as a child, Oh, we want children want to obey their parents, not because they're afraid of getting punished, right, is the true filial love. It's because they love their parents and want to please right. them. And again, he's ambiguously playing on all this to act like, 
obeying the Ten Commandments is sort of outdated and, you know, it's not worthy of Christians. And where he's not drawing any of these distinctions about when he says the law, which law he's talking about, and what St. Paul really means by saying we're, quote, not under the law. doesn't mean the law doesn't bind us. It means we're not under it like a slave or a criminal. We are part of the law as sons. Yes. Yes, exactly. So Pope Francis goes on uh, later in his address to say, excuse me, the apostle explains to the Galatians that in reality, the covenant and the law are not linked indissolubly, the covenant with God and the Mosaic law. The first element he relies on is that the covenant established by God with Abraham was based on faith in the fulfillment of the promise and not on the observance of the law, which did not yet exist. That's a major theme in the letter to the Galatians. Uh Uh, And Pope Francis observes, Abraham began his journey centuries before the law. He goes on, having said this, one should not think, however, that St. Paul was opposed to the Mosaic law. Again, I think he's using the term Mosaic law a little too loosely. He's probably referring to the Ten Commandments, but Uh he should be saying the Ten Commandments, not the whole Mosaic law, because St. Paul certainly was opposed to keeping the whole law of Moses uh, after faith in Christ. Uh, So Pope Francis goes on, several times in his letters, he defends its divine origin and says that it possesses a well-defined role in the history of salvation. The law, however, does not give life, and this part is true. It it does not offer the fulfillment of the promise because it is not capable of being able uh, to fulfill it. And And there is where he's talking about the ceremonial and judicial precepts particularly, right? Because the whole idea of them is their preparation for fulfillment. And that's why St. Paul is saying, he's talking to people who want to preserve the hand washing and the purification. He's saying, look, that did have a role in salvation, but it doesn't give life because it was to look forward to what we have. So if you cling to that, instead of taking the grace that we have, it is not going to be, it is not fulfilling. It is looking forward. And again, the Pope doesn't draw any of these distinctions. You could also think of it as, uh, you know, the law does not have the power to communicate of itself. Even the Ten Commandments do not have the power to communicate sanctifying grace. Yes. We receive that through the sacraments since this, which is why the Council of Trent teaches, and I wish Pope Francis would quote from Trent, uh, if anyone says that without divine grace through Jesus Christ, man can be justified before God by his own works, whether they be done by his own natural powers or through the teaching of the law, let him be anathema. So we cannot be justified through our feeble attempts in our fallen state to keep the law perfectly. Um, this reminds me of the discussion that Bishop Barron had uh, what was a couple years ago with Ben Shapiro, and, and this is what Shapiro said to uh, Bishop Barron. I feel like I lead a pretty good life, I, a very religiously based life in which I try to keep not just the Ten Commandments, but a solid 603 other commandments as well. And I spend an awful lot of my time promulgating what I would consider to be Judeo-Christian virtues, particular, particularly in Western societies. So what's the Catholic view of me? Am I basically screwed here? (laughs) This is exactly what he asked Bishop Barron. And instead of Barron saying, well, Ben, unless you accept Christ and are baptized and enter his church, then yes, you are. (laughs) You are SOL. Um, That's not, unfortunately, what what Bishop Barron said. Bishop Barron should have simply quoted um, from Galatians, for example, um, 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, but knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, meaning all those ceremonial and civil regulations, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, we believe in, uh, we also believe in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Mm-hmm. Now, works of the law, he's not talking about keeping the Ten Commandments, the moral precepts. He's talking about, as Brian explained, the ceremonial and the civil uh, precepts. Because as St. Paul says at the end of that verse, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And that's what Bishop yes. Barron should have explained to, um, to Ben Shapiro when he asked him point blank about it. So moving on, um, I don't know we want to spend too much more time on this, but there is something more, something well, the, significant to end on. Yeah, well, this important, this is an important quote. He says, all those who have faith in Jesus Christ are called to live in the Holy Spirit, who liberates from the law and at the same time brings it to fulfillment according to the commandment of love. But one of you might say to me, but Father, just one thing. Does this mean that if I pray the creed, if I do not need to observe, that I do not need to observe the commandments? No, the commandments are valid in the sense that they are pedagogues, teachers that lead you toward the encounter with Christ. But if you set aside the encounter with Jesus and want to go back to giving greater importance to the commandments, that was the problem of these fundamentalist missionaries, there's their word, right. who had infiltrated the Galatians to confuse them. So again, notice he's playing on this, like I talked about the law of liberty. You are liberated, but in the sense that it's not that, like you're free of the commandments or free of the law. It's that you obey them as a free person. Right? Yes. You obey the law not as a slave to sin but as a free person. Again, he, yes. he makes it sound like, oh, you're free. And secondly, he makes it like the commandments are like suggestions. Oh, they're like exactly. teaching things that, that, that lead you to the encounter. Well, you're actually wrong with that. I mean, he's and backwards. The, impre- right. the, the encounter is first, right? Why do you obey the commandments? Because you are related to Christ and they right. love him, right? The first, the greatest commandment, love the Lord the God with your whole heart and your whole soul. Therefore, I want to obey your commandments. He says, no, the commandments are kind of like, a means to an end. You sort of follow them roughly because they lead you to Christ. But once you find Christ, you're done with the map. No, it's the other way around. You right. find Christ and then you say, I want to obey my love. My, your, you know, as Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right. He has got the order backwards by saying yes. the commandments lead you to Christ. Right. And we have the perfect example in the gospel when a, a young man <laughs> asked our Lord, what must I do to have life everlasting? Our Lord said, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. It's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. And also, as Brian quoted just, just now, John 14, 15, if you yes. love me, keep my commandments. And lastly, in the, I wanted to quote from 1 John chapter 5, St. John the Apostle writes, In this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the charity of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not heavy for those of us who have grace. It is possible to keep the commandments. Mm. And again, put this in perspective, this all comes back to Morris Letizia, where the underlying goal is to undermine the universal 
application and binding nature of the commandments, right? The commandments are, of, are, are, are not due to exception. Now, we, again, we have to understand what the commandments mean, what do they require, but they, they generally deal with intrinsic evils that there's no excuse for doing, right? right. The first commandment, you don't say, well, you, you don't wonder, wonder, render false worship unless you kind of have to be ecumenical and want to get along and kind of want to make people feel good from the Amazon. And that's the whole point of this pontificate is right. to move from absolute moral principles that obviously need to be applied. We need to look at the circumstance, but the principle is immutable to essentially situation ethics. There kind of are no right. principles. There are kind of rules of thumb that can be you know, followed or not. And that's the underlying, that's what America Magazine picked right up on in this statement, that that's what he tries to do by trying to pit, again, this is a classic modernist thing, love and encounter with Christ against the commandments, that right. there's somehow you have to choose one or the other, and right. you should choose the encounter with Christ, where really what Christ said, they're, they're inseparable. If right. you don't keep his commandments, you don't love him. You're not in an encounter right. with him, right? Where he wants right. to divide them as if you have to pick one or the other. Exactly. Very much reminds yes. me of two of the heresies listed in the, the 2019 open letter to the bishops of the world. The first yes. two on the list dealing with this, basically what, what the Council of Trent anathematizes. Yes. It says, if anyone says that a justified man, however perfect he may be, is not bound to observe the commandments of God and of the church, as if the gospel were merely an absolute promise of eternal life without the condition that the commandments be observed, let him be anathema which is yes. canon 20 in the canons on justification. Yes. So, and speaking of this, because this is the general principle, and we've seen Pope Francis has undermined it with respect to adultery, but also with unnatural uh, sexual behavior, sins against nature. And that yes. leads us to our, our second story, uh, which involves Cardinal Muller commenting on a case. So before I get to Cardinal Muller's comments, do a little background on, on what he's talking about. He is, as Matt said in the introduction, referring to uh, this Polish priest, Darius Oko, uh, who uh, has been uh, in the news really since, uh, well, at least 2012. Uh, right. He published uh, a, a scholarly article, uh, which was uh, publicized by uh, Rorate Celi at, uh, uh, at the time. And this article spoke about what he called the term he co uh, coined sort of the homo heresy. Yes. And um, he basically documented the harm being done to the um, church by what Pope, uh, even Pope Benedict referred to as the sort of homosexual mafia uh, or the right. lavender mafia in, in the uh, in the church. And he sort of approached this from a scholarly point of view saying, look, here is this mafia really does exist, this sort of cabal, this network. Uh, Which and, Pope Francis kind of makes light of, like he uh, says, oh, I've never seen a card carrying member of the so-called mafia. He and, knows full exactly. well that it exists. And documents, most importantly, and this comes to what is known, how they protect themselves, how they cover up for each other uh, and keep them, keep themselves in, in power. So this priest, um, uh, Father Oko, and I don't really know very much about him um, other than his 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 writings, um, but uh, his his he published them again in a scientific magazine, Theologisch, uh, uh, in in German, and in those some of the key phrases that uh, come up is that these cliques inside the church he identified as a cancer and as a plague for uh, the church. 
Um, they the the articles did come from a, a lengthier book that he um, that he also published called Lavender Mafia, with the popes and bishops against the homosex clique uh, in the church. Um, that is actually a bestseller in Germany. It sold more than thirty thousand copies I think, as it as it first came out. Um, so what happened to this priest is he was uh, indicted and then uh, he was charged and then uh, found guilty of a, a crime of quote incitement to hatred against homosexuals. Um, and he was fined 4,800 uh, euros uh, by a German district court in Cologne. So this is another example of the, the sort of the, 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 the deep states uh, trying to silence uh, anything, any, anything that doesn't fit with their narrative. And again, he publishes saying he's reporting on facts, that there is this uh, group who are, are working within the church, who are undermining the church, who are covering up for crimes uh, that are being committed. Uh, and what happens, the whistleblower, the one who's sort of pointing out the problem, uh, is the one who's accused of the crime uh, and is uh, punished. Just like in the uh, the McCarrick report, where Vigano is basically the scapegoat for everything. Exactly, We're, you know, it's more about uh, Vigano than about uh, uh, McCarrick. So this week, August 9th, uh, Cardinal uh, Muller, who is the uh, former uh, prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, told Goshpul, um, a, a, a German periodical, on August 9th, uh, he he gave some comments about this Oko conviction in Germany. Uh, for what he said. Uh, he, he actually used some really strong language. He said this indictment of him for, for speaking out in an academic scientific journal uh, reminded him of the National Socialists uh, General Governor of Poland, who sent the entire Krakow professorship to a concentration camp for speaking out and saying things that were against the regime's narrative. Um, uh, and uh, Muller says that uh, condemning such crimes of those in the church is, quote, an act of courage that deserves respect of all decent, de decent people and is not, not a crime. Yes. He explained, quoting Cardinal Muller, the criminal nature of the action of these individuals who live in the church but protect themselves behind the shield of impunity afforded by their office are leading numerous young men to their, their doom. Uh, and he, he, he noted that the, the sad result of this is that Innocent priests who haven't really done anything wrong, and I've seen this happen, are accused of being pedophiles or just, you know, mocked. And, and when, when they haven't done anything wrong, when the real criminals are being covered up uh, and protected. Uh, mm -hmm. So, again, really interesting that he sort of he sees and in the language of, of um, uh, really Archbishop Vigano, he's commenting on the deep church and the deep state are working here together to punish a priest like this, Father Oko, who is pointing out the... Uh, the, the problem here, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, punishing the criminals. And again, thanks to Gloria TV, I think, for breaking that story on um, uh, Cardinal Muller. And I love, they most of their stories, they have little cartoons at the bottom. So here is the <laughs> cartoon at the uh, the bottom. It says, I still haven't found anyone with an identity card, as Matt said, in the Vatican uh, with gay on it, Francis, July 2013. And then uh, here's their little, their little cartoon. So they do have some very uh, funny... Uh, cartoons. Now, yes. the last comment I'll make is this is really the sad state of the church where we are, uh, because Cardinal Muller, again, uh, not to take away from the good things he said, but this is sort of the sad state that, that we've come to, where a cardinal, if you remember when he was appointed the, the head of the CDF, there were lots of concerns expressed, because this is someone who had written a book, 
casting doubt on the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, on the physical nature of the resurrection. I mean, there were a bunch of modernist, very suspect uh, statements in his published writing, and yet then Benedict makes him the head of the CDF. So again, this is, again, not, not, not to say, I mean, you know, even a, you know, when, a, when a broken clock is right, you don't say the time's not right. So he is saying something good here, but it's sort right. of the sad state we're in. A theologian who's got sort of weird modernist tendencies is sort of who gets looked to as this staunch conservative because right. he says such basic things like this. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, well, that takes us into yes, our sir. next story, I guess, is a very interesting panel discussion happened this week, Monday, on Traditionis Custodis. And it was hosted by uh, someone I wasn't previously familiar with, an Italian gentleman named. Aurelio Porfi, uh, Porfiri, who is an Italian, very accomplished, it sounds like, yes. Italian composer, choral conductor, uh, renowned organist, educator, author, and publisher. And it's post, this uh, discussion is posted on the YouTube channel Ritorno a Itica, or Return to, it, to Ithaca in mm -hmm. English. So the panelists in this discussion included in addition to Mr. Porfiri, Cardinal Joseph Zen, Bishop Athanasius Schneider, Dr. John Rao, whom some of our viewers, many of our subscribers probably recognize his name uh, over the years, Dr. Robert Monahan of Inside the Vatican Magazine, Philippe Alani Suarez, who is the current president of the, Inter the International Federation Una Voce, and James Bogle, who was a past Una Voce president. And what I found very the most interesting about the discussion was a, kind of a little disagreement that arose between some of the members on the panel. Um, on one side, you had uh, Dr. Robert Monahan and Cardinal Joseph Zen, who expressed doubts that Traditionis Custodis was actually Francis's own initiative, hmm. for, uh, essentially proposing instead that the Pope was coerced or pushed, you know, to issue the document by quote some of his more progressive advisors, particularly the Italian bishops, was Monaghan's contention. And Cardinal Zen said uh, people in the Roman Curia, specifically the Secretariat of State. So we have a couple of video clips that we're gonna play of them speaking about this. First is Dr. Monaghan. Pope Francis has taken this decision and Monsignor Barth tells us that he was pushed to this decision by some of his more progressive advisors particularly Italian bishops, but of course also in other countries. I would like to state that I myself do not understand the entire process here, and I wanted to bring to your attention a couple of facts. The Pope went into the hospital on July 4th. He had surgery and he was under anesthesia, general anesthesia. He came out of that on the 5th and the 6th of July. He was beginning to recover. He was supposed to come back to the Vatican on the 7th or the 8th of July. They kept him another several days. He came back to the Vatican after 10 days in the hospital on the 14th of July. On the 15th of July, he rested. And on the morning of the 16th of July, this document was released. I have a doubt about how much the Pope followed the publication of this document, how much control he had over it. And I would like some response from the Vatican. 
So that's the sort of setting out the position uh, right. first. Um, do you want to play the uh, Cardinal Zen one next? Yeah, we'll go ahead and we can play that the Cardinal okay. Zen clip because Cardinal Zen picks up on what uh, Dr. Monahan was just saying there. Yes. So. And Cardinal Zen, you'll recall, is the uh, retired uh, Bishop of Hong Kong. Yes. Uh, I, I would like to go back to what uh, uh, Robert said. Uh, uh, it seems that uh, the whole thing, this big storm, this attack against uh, the Trident Hamas, uh, may come from, uh, he says, uh, Italian bishops. Uh, uh, I, I, I even doubt that, uh, uh, I don't know, may, may not even be uh, the situation in Italy. I am I, afraid the, the initiative may come uh, uh, from the Roman Curia, uh, even more precisely from the Secretary of State. Uh, that pretty much sums it up. So right Cardinal, now. you know, this motto proprio, who he, uh, who he points out. And then on the other side of this, uh, this point, uh, we have another clip for you from, um, who do we have here? We have a, a, another clip. From Bishop Schneider, Bishop Schneider who essentially yes. is countering or responding to Dr. Monaghan and Cardinal Zen's claims about the true origin of uh, Traditionis Custodis, yes. stating that, quote, we have not the documentation and the proofs to verify such claims that it really wasn't Pope Francis's initiative. Uh, we have not the, the documentation and the proofs. And this is, for my opinion, a secondary aspect because uh, according to the church law and to the reason, uh, since uh, this is a document of the Pope and the Holy See published this, with the signature of the Pope, it's a motu proprio, and then it's a personal letter, the accompanying letter of the Pope is personal. Oh. Again, so that's his, uh, I think, very uh, cogent uh, response. And then we have one more final clip, and then we'll maybe uh, discuss this. Can you see this, think, the new, can you see the yeah. new clip? Yes. This is not 1969, this is not 1984, with the first indult, this is not 1988, this is not even 2007. You have a vibrant Tridentine community uh, that exercises its, um, its, 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 uh, uh, its, its uh, rights in a variety of different forms and they are, none of them, ready to give up the battle. It is absolutely- And there it ends, you see, with John Rao, who really repeated what he said in uh, New York, for those of you who may have been at the Gardone in exile, uh, get, get, get out the battle armor because yes. this is we're not a caught off guard like 1970 uh, or even you know in, in later periods we're, we're going to keep fighting which I think is Bishop Snyder's point is really important he says you know the, you're, you're arguing over something that's irrelevant Moynihan right. and etc it's like the real point is what are we going to do about this not right. these niceties of what happened and he and as Bishop Snyder goes on to say in that clip you know he recognizes that these documents first of all they do come from the Pope they're signed by him they're presented right. as such and they are, as he said, quote, dangerous, and they are a yes. danger to the faith. And yes. they basically are a repudiation and represent a rupture with the tradition of the church. 
right. Yeah. And again, this reminds me of the 80s and 90s when the apologists for the Vatican II order, when John Paul II would do something goofy, would all run around, oh, he didn't really know what he was doing. He was being led around. He would do some outrageous liturgical ceremonies. Oh, it was the master of ceremonies. He, he didn't know what to do, and he, he just uh, didn't realize it. Or when he would issue a statement, oh, that was written for him. And again, trying to take away responsibility from the act. And again, it failed then, it fails now. Look, no one's saying Pope Francis sat in his hospital bed and wrote this. We all know that. Pope Benedict didn't sit there and write all of Samarum Pontificum himself, personally. Right. That's how the Pope works. He has advisors who prepare drafts. We And we also know this went on long before he went in the hospital. We know this draft has been circulating for months and that it was sent to different congregations. They were marked up. And the point is the Pope, the buck stops here, right? To use the reference from, from uh, 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 President Truman. It, it, all these people give their input, their opinions, and they write it, but he's the one that says, okay, that's it. That's the, that's the document. And it's his law. We don't get into, right. you know, who helped him write it. It's his law. He did it, his act. And that's really all that, that matters. Here. And as Bishop Schneider also emphasized, it, it was accompanied by a personal letter from Francis writing in the first person to the bishops of the world. So it's really, I'd say it's ludicrous to claim that this is not coming from Pope Francis, um, especially in light of his long history of deriding traditional Catholics and those who attend the traditional mass as being rigid, right. fundamentalist, yes. even implying that they're mentally ill, as John Venari, our predecessor, documented uh, in the early years of the pontificate. Now, again, did he come up with all the details? Probably not, right? And again, that's kind of how this Pope, uh, it, people suggest things to him, right? Oh, here's how we could do this. Here's how we could give community. The, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that, right? So right. He, they try to act like the Pope didn't know what he was doing or didn't really care about this. I think Matt's point is clear. This act is very consistent with what this Pope has said for years, for his whole pontificate, his attacks on traditionalists, on altar boys with their folded hands, right. you know, on and on. So this is a logical extension of that. Now, did he come up with the specific plans? Probably not, but he certainly approved of them, right? He approved of them. Um, right. And this is his act. And it's really a sideshow from what John Rowell said and what really just repeating Archbishop Vigano, we, this needs to be resisted. This right. needs and to be resisted as it grows. There's more stories coming out. Uh, Bishop DiNardo, it's now appears when he returns to the Diocese of Houston, is going to suppress a certain number of traditional masses, not clear where, how many. And again, some of the stories are, as reported, that he said, I've got to cut some to please Pope Francis. Like, calculated unless i get rid of some traditional masses we might lose all of them and this is this is a state we're in and we need to be talking to priests and bishops that is not the response to a dictator you never appease a dictator because no. it will never be good enough it ha we have to stand on principles and that's mm -hmm. as john Rowell said that's what we need to be doing now not you know not in the 70s in the beginning people were caught off guard well maybe if we do this if we compromise a little bit we'll be able to keep it we now know the way this will unfold. Um, we know the Ecclesia Dei communities are, their targets are on them. There's rumors by Mesa and Latina, who was right on Traditionis Custodes, that there is being drafted an implementation document. And likely what they did is they watched the, the bishops. And we've seen how their bishops who have right. tried to not implement it, right? You've said, oh, I'm going to use this canon, I'm going to do that. It's likely that that implementation document is going to shut down what they did. That, you know, so. Right. 
Francis could put an end to this right now. He could say, oh, wait, that's not what I meant to do. Oh, I was tricked into that. He's not going to do that. No. And just to, to drive that point home before we move on to our next story, this is a quote from, from Francis's uh, address to participants in the 68th National Liturgical Week in Italy on August 24th, 2017. Here's what he said, quote, we can affirm with certainty and with magisterial authority that the liturgical reform is irreversible. Sound familiar? Uh -huh. That's exactly, that's the crux of the matter for Traditionis Custodes. Vatican II, the new mass are irreversible. You either need to get on board or you're going to be or get out, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. get on board or get out. Exactly. exactly. So speaking of getting on board or get out, we get to our, our next story, uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, there is a case that uh, was resolved just yet late yesterday uh, in its early stages. So Indiana University mandated that all uh, faculty, staff, and students receive a vaccine. They did provide uh, for some um, exemptions, religious and medical exemptions, but a group of students uh, sued and said, this is unconstitutional to force us to have a medical procedure, it's experimental by the way, uh, on us to be able to maintain the ability to go to a publicly funded school is uh, unconstitutional. So they filed that suit. They went to the first court of instance, a district court, they lost. They, well, what they wanted to do, let me back up, lost. So this litigation will probably take months or years to resolve. So often when there's something very pressing, when they say, well, look, if we win, it may be too late because they're saying, look, if this court decision next year says, oh, yeah, you didn't have to get the mandate. Well, we weren't in school all year, um, right. you know, and we, we sort of we win, but we lose. They, they said, look, grant a temporary restraining order, an injunction that says, OK, are you, you can't enforce this while we figure out if it's legal or not. So that's what their right. posture was. They said, we're going to get to prove all of our claims. But since we're on a short time clock, school's about to start. Will you court right. tell the university that they can't make us do it while we sort this out? Then, in other words, they don't want to put their lives on hold for a right. couple of years. Yeah. Which could be years, right. So the first court said, nope, not going to do that. It went to the Seventh Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. Uh, they said, nope, not going to do it. So they appealed to the Supreme Court for this emergency uh, application for a writ of injunction, a sort of, okay, stop, don't do anything until the case is over. So again, they weren't asking the Supreme Court to decide the case. It, right. is this constitutional, but would they essentially protect them from, because again, it's sort of, it's over. If you get the vaccine, you can't unget it. And if you right. miss school, you, you're, you, you miss school. Um, this, the way the Supreme Court works is each justice has a certain district, uh, um, circuit court of appeals that they hear these emergency orders from. Like so it doesn't go to the area, basically. Geographic area. So uh, because in these emergency things, there's not time for the full court. It's just an individual judge who decides what to do for those coming from that area. Amy Coney Barrett is responsible for the Seventh Circuit. Uh, that's that. That's where she was a judge, actually. She was a justice on the, the Seventh Circuit before the Supreme Court. So it was very normal for her to get this appeal. Um, she also denied it and said, nope, Go, you know, and again, that doesn't mean they lost the case. It just right. means they lost the ability to freeze the status quo while it goes on. Now, what this means is, is she a little didn't really hard. give an explanation, did she? She doesn't, although that is fairly typical. Again, these are kind of quick emergency things, okay. and they're, but that's why it's hard to know what it means. Generally, though, when you grant these injunctions, the test is okay. Is this going to cause harm if I don't do that while the litigation is going on? Is things going to change? 
that we can't undo. And again, as I said, that's mm -hmm. pretty clear here. But the other balance is, is it likely that they will win? So it's not a you won, but is it, do I think there's a good shot that they will ultimately win this? Now, mm -hmm. we don't know which of those two she based it on. What we do know that is troubling is when she was on the Seventh Circuit, um, she, the Seventh Circuit cited an old 1905 case of the Supreme Court uh, um, in their rulings. So when the Seventh Circuit said, they actually explained it. They said, we're not going to do this because they said we're bound to, because in 1905, there was a, a city that mandated a smallpox vaccine and you had to pay a $5 fine if you didn't get the vaccine. And the Supreme Court said that was constitutional. Now, there's lots of problems with that case, but also this is not really analogous, right? Paying $5 is dramatically different from not being able to go to college, right? So there's right. there's lots of distinctions. Right. Um, but she didn't really explain. But we do know when she was on the Seventh Circuit, before she became Supreme Court Justice, she decided another case and cited that 1905 case and said, oh, well, now, at that time, it was unclear because she might have been just saying, well, I'm not on the Supreme Court. I have to follow it until they say that was a bad decision um, and we're changing it. But this indicates she doesn't, that she may you know, may not, as you may think it's a good decision, which would be bad for these cases, because it is right. a really poorly decided decision. It's also not really applicable now. So it really should be sort of said, this doesn't apply now. Um, so it, it's not good news for these students, because now they're faced again with this uh, Faucian bargain. If you want to have a life, which, you know, and what uh, also de Blasio said, you've got to get with the deep state program, um, just like Pope Francis. You conform or you're out. Uh, right. And they really don't have a, a, a you know, and they have to pursue the litigation, but they're, they can't go to school uh, if they're not going to take the uh, gene serum. So very disappointing uh, from her. Again, she didn't have to make the ruling on her own. She could have just said, you know what? Indiana, you can just let these handful of students alone until we figure this out. But she didn't didn't do that. Again, it's discouraging. Hopefully, the real, the final case will go the right way, but it doesn't uh, bode well for for her uh, being a, a, a true jurist and not just a pawn of the deep state. Right, right. And kind of the flip side of the story, to add a yes. positive note, is that there are some bishops, a handful of bishops around the country, who are coming yes. out in support of conscience rights. Uh, some, the first group of which is in my home state of Colorado, the, the Colorado Catholic Conference, as it's called. I think the, just like there's the, you know, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Episcopal Conference, and they have these regional conferences, which are essentially a microcosm of the USCCB. So the, the Colorado bishops issued a statement on August 5th, uh, stating in part, quote, we, the Catholic bishops of Colorado, consistent with our previous letters on COVID-19 vaccines, affirm that the use of some COVID-19 vaccines is morally acceptable under certain circumstances. We understand that some individuals have well-founded convictions that lead them to discern they should not get vaccinated. And here's the crux of their statement. If any person comes to an informed judgment that he or she should receive or not receive a vaccine, that person should follow their conscience and they should not be penalized for doing so. We encourage any individual seeking exemption to consult their employer or school. The Colorado Catholic Conference also has a letter template available to be signed by pastors of the faithful if a Catholic wants a written record that they are seeking exemption on religious grounds. And that's very significant, the last part, 
because as we know in other places in the country, as I think Brian's going to share, um, the local ordinary is actually discouraging and even threatening to punish priests who sign such a letter, for example, in the Archdiocese of New York. Yes, the Archdiocese of New York issued a letter through the Chancery Office to all priests uh, telling them that they were forbidden, and, and as Matt said, it was, will, will be punished by signing any type of a letter helping anyone uh, to get a religious exemption. And that letter, quoting from it, says, there is no basis for a priest to issue a religious exemption uh, to the vaccine. By doing so, he is acting in contradiction to the directives of the Pope and is participating in an act that could have serious consequences to others, right? <laughs> and again, they are conflating. This is what they're Even doing. though the CDF document says that it has to be voluntary. <laughs> exactly. They're, what they're doing is conflating two things. The CDF document, which is, again, is somewhat problematic, but at least at the end says, look, this is a matter of discerning judgment. And, you know, basically here are the principles. Here's what we think about it. It's possible to reach a conclusion that you could morally accept it, but it has to be free. You can't be compelled. And they're conflating that with Pope Francis, who said you have, a, and they even quote in the letter, you have a moral duty to receive this vaccine. So again, they're acting as if this off-the-cuff statement of Pope Francis is the teaching of the church and saying you're going against the Pope. And I know, I actually know a case of a, someone uh, who got a religious exemption because her priest, I, I commend him, he was a Novus Ordo priest, but was willing to give her a letter saying, right. consistent with Catholic teaching, she is formed a, a, a judgment and conscience and cannot be forced. She has a religious exemption. She got it in the nick of time right before this judge, this uh, this this unjust decree came out. So wow. again, we're seeing, as in Our Lady of Aikido predicted, cardinal against cardinal, bishop against bishop. To, yes. you know, South Dakota and Colorado bishops saying, yes, support people. This is a matter of their conscience, of moral conscience. And then New York punishing priests who are helping people do that. That's that that is the sad state in which the church exists. Right. And that and as Brian just mentioned, the second group of bishops is the, the South Dakota bishops who issued a statement very similar to the Colorado bishops saying, you know, if there's proportion, proportionally grave need and no no alternative is available, then one uh -huh. could perhaps receive the vaccine. But even then, they say a well-formed conscience might decline such interventions yes. in order to affirm with clarity the value of human life. So we commend them for that as yes, well. Yes, we do. So, and speaking of uh, commending, we have a, a very important, this is a practical application. So many times you're listening to these new, what do I do about all this? Well, Archbishop Vigano uh, released a very short statement. Uh, you can find it, uh, among other places, on our website, Catholic Family News, uh, related to a call uh, to bishops and priests in particular, but to all of us can participate, to fast and recite Leo XIII's exorcism prayer on the Vigil of the Assumption. And as I mentioned, the Vigil of the Assumption no longer binds under pain of mortal sin because the canon law of Abol you know, abolish the obligation, but traditionally was a day in which Catholics were bound uh, to fast in preparation for the uh, for the feast, and I think that's why he picks the Vigil of the Assumption uh, particularly. Uh, and uh, again, you can read his full full statement here. Uh, beautifully, he says the Lord. Um, has given to bishops and priests the power to cast out demons in his name. Already on Holy Saturday of 2020, many of them welcomed my appeal uh, with generosity and a supernatural spirit. 
Today, I intend to renew that appeal. I ask, therefore, my venerable brothers in the Episcopacy and priesthood to dedicate the vigil of the Assumption of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary to prayer and fasting and to reciting the exorcism uh, in Satanum et Angelos Apostolicos of Leo XIII. And again, for our, many of our readers, I'm sure, are aware of the story. Uh, Leo XIII, after celebrating Mass, collapsed. After he came to, he said that he had a, a, a vision where our Lord uh, was conversing with the devil, and the devil was taunting our Lord in the tabernacle, saying, if I had more time and more power, I could destroy your church, defeat the church, and our Lord granted him more power and a hundred years. Again, we don't know when that hundred years starts, stops, but a hundred year period. Uh, at Leo the Thirteenth, immediately when he came up from this experience, this uh, this this experience, composed the an exorcism to Saint Michael. Uh, part of which is the prayer to Saint Michael that you may be familiar with, that is customarily now said after low mass. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. That is only a part of a much larger right. exorcism prayer um, that uh, Pope Leo XIII originally ordered after all low masses, but then the, the portion of it eventually by Pius XI came just the, the only part used. Um, now, obviously, only priests and bishops who have the order of exorcists within them can perform the exorcism, right. but we can participate in this by Number one, doing our fa own fasting on the Feast of Vigil of the As Assumption. Remember, our Lord said some some devils will only be cast out by prayer and prayer and fasting. Right? Um, yes. Fasting is important. Number two, going to our priests and encouraging them, bringing this request. Say, after Mass, the Vigil of the Assumption, will you recite publicly this exorcism prayer for the Church? I mean, it's clear. Uh, our Archbishop Vigano has told us over and over again: we are fighting an invisible enemy. It's clear yes. who that invisible enemy is, the one who argued with our Lord and demanded more time and more power. It must be clear he was given more power. He has infiltrated the church with his minions. Uh, you know, again, we, we, we don't know how exactly when uh, all these things played out, but it's clear the prophecy has been fulfilled. And uh, Leo XIII gave us the remedy against it. So bring it to your priests, encourage them to say, again, it's, it's not enough to just sort of say this as a devotion privately, although we can read the St. Michael prayer privately, but only a priest publicly can perform this exorcism of the church. And right. it's really what Vigano, Archbishop Vigano calls upon us to do. So let's play our role, our, our, our role as, uh, as uh, the laity by encouraging and supporting our priest to do this and say, I will fast for you tomorrow so that you will have the fortitude uh, to, to do this and not to flee the foot of the cross. Yes, absolutely. One other, uh, before we close up today, one other announcement I wanted to make is that uh, a wonderful documentary that's been in the works for a couple of years now, I think, is called Mass of the Ages. Uh, it includes interviews with uh, uh, Catholic Family News contributor Dr. Peter Kwasniewski and others. Uh, Eric Sammons, I know, was interviewed for it. And it actually premieres uh, this coming Sunday, August 15th, the Feast of the Assumption for information about how to watch I, I believe it's a trilogy so the first episode premieres this sunday uh visit their website which is just the liturgy.org and the, the documentary is called mass of the ages yes i think we mentioned it last summer when they were making uh, in the process of still making it yes 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 so right. thank you if you've enjoyed this uh, again 
it's so wonderful to have so many of you joining us. Uh, we've had, you know, many more people watching this the past few weeks and our other programming. That's due to you. Thank you for sharing, liking, commenting on that it you know, brings more attention to the videos. Yes. Thank you for doing your part. We're seeing results. We're reaching more people. So keep up the effort. Keep sending. Keep forwarding. Uh, and as always, if you like our free content, please consider subscribing to our paid monthly periodical uh, Catholic Family News, which you can read online or have delivered in paper format. Uh, but again, that's our primary source of support. You can also make a donation on our website, but primarily our support comes from uh, those subscriptions. So if you can uh, yes. do that, that will help continue our, our apostolate. Yes. And as we always do, we will close with uh, praying the Hail Mary and also the prayer against communists. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal Father, I offer you the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the instruments of his holy passion, that thou may put division in the camp of thy enemies. For as thy beloved Son hath said, a kingdom divided against itself shall fall. St. Hippolytus and Cassiot, pray for us. St. Lawrence, pray for us. St. Clair, pray for us. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Again, remember to pray and fast tomorrow, and we wish you a happy and holy feast of the Assumption on Sunday, and look forward to visiting with you again next week. Yes, Godspeed. Thank you.